Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. My name is A.T. Stewart. I'm pastor of Westside Church in Mableton, Georgia, and I am uh, your teacher. We're continuing today our discussion about the tribulation. We'll be looking at its time, duration, and purpose. Our study in Revelation has brought us to chapter 8. With that chapter, we have entered into the period of history known in the Bible as the tribulation. Last lesson, we looked at verses 1 through 6 in chapter 8. And we saw, first of all, the preparation in heaven for the tribulation. There was a silence of almost a half an hour. And then there were the prayers of the saints. And then we saw the nature of the tribulation, which is the rejected love of God. When his love is rejected, then you will experience his judgment. We saw the time of tribulation will be a time of doom, of wrath, of darkness, of punishment, and of destruction. The tragedy of rejecting God. It shows us the necessity of proclaiming the gospel uh, to everyone. that They might receive the love of God and not be rejected. This week our study will take us outside the book of Revelation to the books of Matthew and Daniel as we see what the Word of God says about the time, duration, and purpose of the tribulation. We will be answering four questions in this lesson. First, when will the tribulation begin? Second, how will we know we are in the tribulation? Thirdly, how long will the tribulation last? And finally, what are God's purposes for the tribulation? First, when will the tribulation begin? No one knows the exact day or year, yet from the Word of God, I think we can tell when the tribulation is near. In our text today, from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, we see Jesus giving us his outline of end-time events. This passage in Matthew 24 and the parallel passages in Luke and in Mark give us the greatest detailed account that Jesus has of the end times. He gives us his outline as we see him talking about before the tribulation. He talks about the tribulation. He talks about his return. And then he talks about the rapture of the church. We're in Matthew 24. I will begin reading in verses 3 and 4 on through verse 8. And he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of the birth pangs. 
In our passage, Jesus tells us some things that will occur prior to the tribulation. He says there will be false Christ who will arise. He says there will be wars. There will be uprisings. There will be famines. There will be earthquakes. Now you might be thinking, well, haven't we always had wars and uprisings and famines and earthquakes? And of course the answer is yes. Well then, how does, does this help us to know when the tribulation is near? The key is looking at what Jesus says, that all these things, in verse 8, are merely the beginning of the birth pangs. Birth pangs, as you know, when they start, they are light and they are far apart. But as it becomes closer for the time of the actual birth, the birth pangs become more intense and they come closer together. The intensity and the frequency increases. I believe this is a key to understanding what Jesus is saying. Yes, we've always had wars and uprisings and famines and earthquakes, but when we see the intensity of these events increase and their frequency increases, then we will know that we are near to the time of the tribulation. I think it's interesting to see a parallel between what Jesus mentions in these verses about what will take place prior to the tribulation and the six seals that we have seen in Revelation chapter 6. Here you have the Antichrist in one of the seals, you have wars, you have famine, you have death of 1.7 billion people, you have great cosmic upheaval. Now what we have in the seals of Revelation chapter 6 is we have the birth pains at the most intense and closest frequency that there will ever have been in history. These are the pains that will give birth to the tribulation. It is at hand, very close, very near, when we see the six seals of God's wrath open. Therefore, when we see these six seals, we will know the tribulation is very close. So as far as the timing of the tribulation is concerned, when will it take place? Our indication is when we see these six seals broken over in Revelation chapter 6. Now the second question, how will we know that we are in the tribulation? Well, Jesus describes the tribulation for us beginning in verse 9 of Matthew 24. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and will kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So Jesus tells us that Christians will be killed in verse 9. He says, During the tribulation there will be a great falling away from the churches. 
It seems the churches will be filled during the seals of God's wrath before the tribulation, but when the tribulation begins, many will fall away. You might be thinking, but did we not learn that God preserves his people? How is this then that many will fall away? Well, I will testify clearly that God will preserve his own. The ones who will fall away at this time are those who are simply nominal Christians, that is, name-only Christians. They have been deceived into what I call churchanity, not Christianity. That is, they attend church and think because they attend church or have joined the church that they're Christians. They will be those who have the form of godliness but do not have its power. They know about Jesus, but they do not know Jesus personally. They do not have a personal saving relationship with him. I believe many of these will be those that Jesus spoke about in Matthew 7, when he says, Many will say to me on that day, and he means a judgment day, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, Depart from me, for I never knew you. So there will be this great falling away, and by their falling away, it will be proof that they are not truly born again, not truly Christians. Jesus also says there will be false prophets who will arise, that lawlessness will increase, crime will abound. He says hearts will grow cold. And then he tells us there will be the abomination of desolation. Now, he refers to the book of Daniel when he mentions this. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. And here he talks about the great tribulation. Now, I believe Jesus has spoken about the first three and a half years in verses 9 through 14. And now he moves to the last three and a half years, known as the Great Tribulation. And he says, we will know this has begun when we see the abomination of desolation. As recorded over in Daniel 9.27, we read, And he will make, meaning the Antichrist, a firm covenant with the many, that is with Israel, for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifices and grain offerings, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now Paul also talks about this abomination of desolation over in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. There Paul tells us about the time that the Antichrist will come into the temple, and he will proclaim himself to be God. Beginning in verse 3 of Second Thessalonians 2, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness, that's the Antichrist, is revealed the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. I believe what we're seeing here is the teaching of Scripture that at the midpoint of the tribulation, 
that the Antichrist will go into the temple in Jerusalem and he will put a stop to the animal sacrifices and he will proclaim himself to be God. This signals the beginning of the second three and a half year period of the tribulation known as the Great Tribulation. I believe at this point Satan will invade and possess this man, the Antichrist, as the Antichrist comes into his full power. Notice it says also that we are in the tribulation when the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel. As we have just seen in Daniel 9.27, there is the firm covenant that the Antichrist makes with Israel. This is a peace treaty that the Antichrist makes with Israel. And we will know the tribulation has begun when this peace treaty is signed. Now Jesus goes on in Matthew 24 to tell us more about the great tribulation, beginning in verse 16. He says, After the abomination of desolation, let those who are in Judah flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. But just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So Jesus tells us the things that will be occurring in the tribulation, both in the first three and a half years, and in the second three and a half years. Now that brings us to the next question, which we have practically answered. How long will the tribulation last? As we saw in Daniel 9.27, it teaches that it will last seven years. Daniel's prophecy is that the Antichrist will make a firm covenant for one week. Now Daniel works from the framework of 70 weeks, and these are 70 weeks of years. So a week equals seven years in Daniel's framework. So the Antichrist will make a firm covenant of peace treaty with Israel for one week, seven years. Now also we believe the tribulation will last seven years because Revelation divides this period into two, three and a half year periods. The first time is over in Revelation chapter 11, the chapter that talks about the two witnesses that God will lift up. Uh, They will be flaming evangelists. They will literally call down fire from heaven. And their ministry will take place in the first three and a half years 
of the tribulation. We see this in Revelation 11, verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days. Now, 1260 days is 42 months, which is three and a half years. Also in Revelation chapter 13, that talks about the Antichrist, we see again the tribulation period divided up into a three and a half year period. In verse 5, it reads, There was given to him, that is the Antichrist, a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for forty-two months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. I believe that that verse refers to this abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke about, that Jesus spoke about, that Paul speaks about. And here John is talking about the Antichrist going into the temple and proclaiming himself to be God. Here his true colors come out. He enters into his full power, and it will continue through the second part, the second three and a half year period of the tribulation. Uh, and so here we have the tribulation, first three and a half years, known as the tribulation, second three and a half years, known as the great tribulation, because it is at that time that Satan will, I believe, possess the Antichrist and will pour forth his full fury on God's people, even as God pours forth his holy wrath on those who have and are rejecting him. Now, God has revealed the duration of the tribulation, I believe, for our comfort and for our encouragement. You remember Jesus said, For the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. And so it is a part of God's grace that the tribulation only lasts for seven years. In fact, Jesus said, But when you see these things take place, straighten up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now that brings us to our final question. Why does God allow the tribulation? What are God's purposes for this seven-year period of history known as the tribulation? I believe there are four purposes that God has for the tribulation. I believe number one is to vindicate His righteousness. We saw in Revelation chapter 8, as we saw the, the nature of the tribulation, that as God pours forth His judgment on sinful, unregenerate man, He will be vindicating His own righteousness and justice. You remember the angel went to the bronze altar, the altar of sacrifice, and he took the coals from that altar and cast them upon the earth to bring about the tribulation. Remember we said that was a clear picture that the Rationale behind the tribulation is the rejected sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Those who reject God's sacrifice in Jesus Christ, who reject His love, will experience His judgment. And here we have in the tribulation 
the pouring forth of the righteous judgment of God on those who have rejected his love. The trumpets of God's wrath in Revelation 8 and 9, the bowls of God's wrath in Revelation 16, these are displays of the righteous judgment of God. I think it is very significant that in Revelation chapter 16, after the bowls of God's wrath are poured out, and these will be the most horrific displays of God's judgment that the world has ever witnessed. Now, after this display of the wrath of God, we see an angel in heaven makes a proclamation. And this proclamation states the righteousness of God. He is saying to us that these judgments, this horrific wrath of God, is a just wrath. It's not vengeful, but it is just. Let me read what that angel says in Revelation chapter 16, verse 5. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judge these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. I believe that we are hearing from heaven that indeed these displays of God's wrath are his righteous judgments. They are true. They are righteous. And so God will vindicate his righteousness during the days of the tribulation. There are sin that abounds in our day, and it appears that God is doing nothing. We look and see the persecution of Christians. We see great injustices occurring in the world. And we perhaps think, well, why is God not doing something? Well, during the tribulation, God will be vindicating His righteousness as He pours out His holy judgment on unrighteousness and sin. Now, the second purpose of the tribulation will be to turn the nation of Israel to Jesus, the Messiah. Malachi chapter 4 speaks about the end time. It says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great day of the Lord. I believe the preaching of the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11 is a fulfillment of this prophecy. And I believe at their preaching, thousands of Jews will come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Paul talks about in Romans 11 that God is not finished with the Jews yet. Though they have rejected Christ and he has turned to the Gentiles, he's not finished with the Jews. We have been grafted into the vine, Paul says, but in the end times there will be a great awakening in the nation of Israel. He says in verse 25 of Romans 11, A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and thus all Israel will be saved. There will be a mass awakening in the nation of Israel as we approach the return of Jesus Christ in great power and glory.
I believe the third purpose of the tribulation will be to turn Gentiles to Jesus Christ. Remember over in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, we saw a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne of God, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And when the angel asked John who these were, and John didn't know, John was told that these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I believe this multitude from all tribes and every nation and peoples and tongues who stand as those who have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, washed in His blood, lets us know that there will be Gentiles who will be saved during the time of the tribulation. Even though God is pouring out His judgment, His mercy and grace are not absent. Even in His judgments, His mercy is seeking to turn the unrepentant heart back to Himself. These judgments are only a foretaste of the final judgment. They are a foretaste of hell. And some will turn to God in repentance and faith. But I'm afraid many will not. But God who desires all men be saved will send the tribulation to turn men and women back to Himself. Now the fourth purpose for the tribulation will be to purify the church of Jesus Christ. God's people have suffered throughout history. Suffering is one of God's primary ways to purify and strengthen the church. In Ephesians chapter 5, the scripture says that God will present to to himself the church without spot or wrinkle. Now, how do you get wrinkles out of something? By pressing it with a hot iron. I believe the tribulation will be God's hot iron to press out the wrinkles in the church. And this time of suffering will be a time of purifying for the church. The scripture teaches throughout that suffering can be used of God to purify us, to strengthen us, to prove the genuineness of our faith. This is one of the main teachings of First Peter, uh, that it is through our trials and tribulations and hardships that our faith proves to be more precious than gold that is purified through fire. And this brings us to the question of Is the church going to be removed before the tribulation, or will the church indeed go through the tribulation? Now, obviously, I believe the church will go through the tribulation. But let me just take a moment to tell you one of the main reasons that I believe this. And I pause to talk about this because of the popular teaching that the church will not go through the tribulation, but it will be raptured. As I said to you earlier in Matthew 
chapter 24, we have the most extensive discussion by our Lord on end times. He gives for us a outline of end times. Now this is very crucial in my thinking. As I look at Jesus' discussion of the end times, I ask myself, where does Jesus place the rapture? Does he place the rapture before the tribulation? Or does he place the rapture after the tribulation, simultaneous with his great return? Now so far in our discussion today of Matthew 24, as we saw what Jesus said about what would happen prior to the tribulation, as we saw what he said would happen during the first three and a half years of the tribulation, and what he said would happen in the second three and a half years of the tribulation, known as the Great Tribulation, we have not seen anywhere that Jesus makes any reference to the rapture of the church. Now we're going to pick up in verse 29 of Matthew 24, as Jesus talks about his second coming. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Now this is clearly a very visible, glorious return of Jesus Christ. Nothing secret about this return. And notice the next verse. And he, the Son of Man, will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now, if Jesus is mentioning in his outline of end times the rapture of the church, then it is being mentioned in verse 31. When he says, And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now, there are Two phrases that I want us to look at in detail in this verse 31. First, Jesus says, they will gather together. I want us to look at this phrase, gather together. What's significant about this phrase is it is the same phrase that Paul uses over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 to talk about the rapture of the church. There in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, there has been uh, those who said the rapture has already taken place. So Paul is writing to address this question. And he says in verse 1, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus and our gathering together with him. Here we see Paul using the same phrase, uh, basically that's used by Jesus. And here Paul is using it to speak about the rapture 
of the church. The next word I want you to look at is elect. He says the angels will gather together his elect. Now you might be saying, well, if it's so clear that the rapture of the church is going to take place after the tribulation in conjunction with the return of Christ, then why are so many teachers of end times saying that the rapture is going to take place before the tribulation? Well, they say that when Jesus says his elect, this term elect is referring to Israel, not to the church. Now to that I would say that every other time in the New Testament that the word elect is used, sometimes translated chosen, it always without exception refers to the church. And so I think that we cannot honestly say that when it's used in Matthew 24, it refers to the nation of Israel, not to the church, when every other time it's used in the New Testament, it refers clearly to the church of Jesus Christ. And so for me, what our Lord says about the end times, the outline He gives for the events of the end times, speaks volumes. And I believe He clearly teaches that the rapture of the church, the gathering together of His elect, will take place at the end of the tribulation and simultaneous with His return in great glory and power. This concludes our discussion of the tribulation, its time, duration, and purpose. I hope you will join us again next week.